Hi, and welcome to Deep Dive with Jamie Stein, where we take a deep dive look at all things reality TV, pop culture, and the world at large. I'm an intuitive and an empath, which means I pick up on the thoughts, feelings, and energy percolating in other people in the world around me. I believe there is meaning waiting to be found at every turn, if you're willing to see it. So join me as we dismantle everything from trash TV to high spiritual concepts and learn more about ourselves, each other, and how we're all connected. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Deep Dive with Jamie Stein. Today marks a very special episode of The Deep Dive. As most of you listening to this know, I've had a very special relationship with the real world for a long time. It is, of course, the grandmother of all reality shows. It is a reality show I grew up watching when it first aired as a teenager. And of course, I worked on the real world for several seasons. And as I've mentioned before, my experience working on the real world was in many ways a predictor of what I'm doing now in terms terms of using reality TV as a gateway to accessing my own resources as an intuitive and as an empath and connecting with people on deeper levels of their humanity. And it's just a show that's continued to weave its way through my life in surprising and mysterious ways. So having said that, you can imagine it is my deep pleasure and privilege to be welcoming someone to the podcast who first was a breakout star of probably one of the most beloved seasons of the real world, Real World New Orleans back in 2000, and is now once again a breakout star of what we might call the reboot on Peacock, Real World Homecoming New Orleans. Please welcome to the deep dive, Danny Roberts. Hi, Danny. Thank you. It's Jamie. It is both a, a pleasure and a privilege for me to be here as well. And I've been excited about this. And I got to say, I've never, I've, this is the first time I've heard someone refer to the real world as the grandmother of reality TV, but I like the metaphor. I mean, it's the truth, right? I mean, it was the, uh, the originator of this phenomenon. The grandmother with the crusty panties and all. It does feel to me sometimes like a real portal opened when this show got created. And I think there's a reason why it had such longevity and it really sort of struck in the public consciousness in the way that it did, even though it has been such a mixed bag, I think, for the participants and people involved, which obviously that's something you're intimately familiar with. So I'm always drawn to the, I, I guess, the angel and the devil of reality TV and what it all means. I like the approach because I think most people take one lunge or the other, but the true nuance is, is that there is an angel and a devil and a Particularly, I think, with this show, it had such a long history and it evolved so much. So maybe the angel was more in some of the earlier days. Yeah, I wonder about that. I wonder about the original intention of the show. And I wonder about the changes that occurred and why. And even to this day, I wonder about the current intentions for the show and where there are good intentions and where they're fumbling the ball and why. And even for the cast member themselves, those that have ultimately a good experience that's helpful in their lives and those who have less helpful experiences and just, yeah, where's the responsibility of Buna Murray? Where's the responsibility of us as viewers? It is a nuanced, complicated situation. And 
kind of like what I'm always saying. I talk a lot about the Real Housewives in my podcast. And, you know, one of the things I always say, because people can obviously be judgmental of the housewives and kind of dismiss it as trash or, you know, whatever they want to label it as. But my take on it has always been, look, this has been created by the collective. It's here. So whether it's good, bad, right or wrong, it is reflecting something in us. So we can point a finger at it and label it all we want, but we're still not dealing with whatever this represents and why it's here because it's fulfilling some sort of need and it's reflecting something in us. So I'm always of the opinion, like, let's go toward the thing, you know, rather than just kind of rejecting it lump sum as, oh, this is bad. This is trashy, you know, X, Y, or Z. This is a lot to unpack, but I dig it. The thing that's most intriguing to me about your journey is the fact that you are someone who describes yourself as someone who's not hungry for fame. You're certainly not hungry for the spotlight. You're kind of an unlikely reality TV star. And even back in the day, to hear you describe it, going on The Real World, you weren't one of those people who really sought it out. It was actually, my understanding is, a friend suggested you should go audition. You went to the audition on the suggestion of the friend. You were actually going to leave the audition because there was a long line. And it was only because you were keeping your the woman who was online next to you company that you went through with it. It was still a good friend of mine today, which is also a cool part of the story. But all of that is true. It was 98 degrees in Atlanta in the middle of the summer. And I was like, what am I doing here? This is the silliest thing ever. It was escapism. That's what it was. I knew a bit of it from the early days, seeing bits and pieces of some of those earlier seasons. I didn't grow up with cable, so I never had the ability to sit down and watch it in real time like a lot of people back then. But I got to see bits and pieces over the years, and I thought it looked like a really cool experience. And for me, my biggest goal was I had just finished university and I was dying to get out of the South which is super ironic considering where I ended up. <laughs> That's details. It was just kind of the universe at work. It was the last thing that I could have ever imagined myself falling into back then. But for many different reasons, it fell into place that were purely in many ways accidental. And yeah, you know, I, like you mentioned too, I did not see it as sort of my, my first step in a course that I had in mind of where I wanted this to take me. It was literally just escapism in the moment. Part of it was not, I wasn't fully out. I was only out to my closest friends. So there was a big part of it that saw it also as a catalyst for me to own my coming out experience and to have the courage to do it. I was terrified, especially having grown up in the deep south and rural deep south and still being there. It was kind of the kick in the butt I was looking for. But man, as we'll get into in a bit, I was so not prepared for that. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's what I find so interesting. I mean, you're speaking to all the things that I find interesting about it. What I find so interesting about this is that, yeah, you weren't someone who was actively seeking this out. It kind of happened to you in a way. Almost it feels a bit like fate. And then you suddenly find yourself in this situation that, again, per your own description, really ended up overtaking your life. It sounds like it was something you were not prepared for in terms of the fame, just the fame in general. And then, of course, in your case, there were all these added dimensions, like you mentioned, one of being the face of gay youth, let's just say. 
And then also, again, quite by chance, right? This isn't something that you intended to happen. You met your boyfriend at the time, Paul, right before shooting started. He happened to be in the military. And this happened to be at this time of don't ask, don't tell being in the public spotlight. So you very unwittingly became the face of this issue that was something that, again, wasn't a cause that was near and dear to your heart going into this. You sort of stumbled into, here I am having an obligation to this platform that I didn't even really choose for myself. And then on top of that, you and Paul, just as a couple, in many ways, being a public face for gay relationship and feeling the burden and onus of that. And you've talked about how following the end of the show, it was a relationship that you stayed in much longer than you ever would have past its expiration point because you felt this pressure to live up to basically the public expectations and demands. So this is all just to say that this show, that again, you didn't actively seek out, you didn't consciously choose, really overtook your life in ways that you never really could have predicted or foreseen. And what I find so interesting about it for you, so I went and listened to your podcast episode of Astrology with Andy. So for anyone listening to this, this is a great podcast with a very talented, smart astrologer named Andy Bellotti. And he has a podcast called Astrology with Andy, where he interviews people and consults their birth charts and talks through it with them. You did an episode with him a year or so back. Almost two years back now. That's the eerie part is how dead on he was in so many wild ways that could have never guessed at the time. Yeah, that's what we're going to get into. What I find, I find two things really interesting about that. One, that he spoke in that conversation specifically in terms of your soul's journey or your life dharma, that there is a, I guess we could call it a predicted or destined line of transformation where you are to go through a deep dark night of the soul. You are to contend with inner darkness and struggle and conflict. And that part of your dharma is actually the willingness and the choice to discover the alchemy of how to ultimately work with that darkness in order to be reborn and to sort of come through the other side. So just that right there, it's just interesting to me that this kind of prolonged dark night of the souls literally in your chart, and it feels like the real world in a lot of ways, was a major vehicle for a lot of that darkness. Maybe not all of it, but it definitely was a huge turning point that put your life on a trajectory that seems like it has an element of predestination, right? Then when you bring in homecoming, and so what I did do is I I gave a little shout out to Andy and I just asked him, I was like, look, I'm going to be talking to Danny. Can you just tell me like what's in his chart? about now. And he mentioned that there is a literally a once in a lifetime powerful transit that starts like February, March of this year, which of course is when Real World Homecoming premieres. And that this transit is all about rebirth, transformation, laying the foundation for, you know, what's to come. So again, I'm looking at this and I'm like, wow. So once again, the real world homecoming, which just even that right there, like the word homecoming, I like to view life as a waking dream. The symbolism of that coming home, returning to self, the real world is once again, it seems literally baked into your fate and your life's journey. So for me, I'm kind of looking at this saying, wow, you've got this guy. He's not interested in being in the public eye. He's not interested in being famous. He doesn't like reality TV. And yet his whole life's arc 
And his predestination and his dharma and his soul's journey seems baked into this thing called the real world. I am so fascinated by that for you and about you. And I'm hoping maybe there's some information that can come through today about why that is, why this particular vehicle for your soul's journey. And maybe we'll see if there's any sort of integration that wants to happen around these bookend experiences of the real world, real world homecoming, and why this has been the vehicle for Danny Roberts' predestined journey of Dark Night of the Soul and Rebirth in this lifetime. Why? I've been asking myself this question for many years now. This has colored 22 years of my life in some wild ways that could have never guessed. And yes, what Andy saw was so eerie in that he got it down to the exact months even. The truth is, is we would have never known this because I had those conversations with Andy well before the homecoming was a thing, much less a thing that I knew I was going to do. And he got it down to the exact months with the transit and which is even more eerie because it was delayed and pushed back several months and ended up falling right in the framework that he said. When I went back and saw that, I'm like, the hair stood up on my arms. Just hearing you speak, I just feel for you, Danny. You're so guided and you're so supported. I, I don't know what your relationship to spirituality is, but I, I just feel for you. you. You really have a team that's working with you and for you and you are so guided and you are so supported when i hear you say like it got pushed back and that yeah then it literally lined up with this transit i can just feel the degree to which you're guided and supported so this is a question that you've consciously been pondering yes i think particularly as life carried on and i came to a lot of understanding of what had actually really played out through those earlier years that when I was too young and lacked the language to understand the psychological journey I was on through all of that, I didn't have the toolkit to understand it. As I got later in life and started to get the toolkit to understand it, yes, I questioned often like, one, did that really happen? How the hell did this happen? And why is this still such a thing in my life? I had, you know, the tendrils always led back to that moment, that part in my story, which was you know, in the long story, such a small fragment of the big picture, it really became the anchor of my adult life in many ways. And also, I think the hard part was my castmates and I had all pretty much lost touch with each other. Or if we hadn't lost touch with each other, we actively did not speak about this at all. So there was, we were not supporting each other in the way that I think we needed to make sense of it all, which is really unfortunate now looking back. But I think that was intentional over the years. I think it was a coping mechanism we all used to sort of attempt to put that in the past, compartmentalize it, box it away. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? There can be so much resistance to the experience and what it was. And like you said, compartmentalizing it rather than perhaps letting yourself fully go towards it and actually integrate what the fuck just happened. I think this homecoming has actually been incredible because I think one of the clearest things that has come out of it is one, the ability to have these conversations with all of us now and like understand and support each other, understand we all went through some really strange things in our lives that very few can relate to. Some of us more so than others, you know, particularly I think Melissa and I went through some extremely similar journeys. And I think we both came to a clarity that actually later in life, part of what was difficult about accepting this is that I think we both had gained a very deep intrinsic, most of us, if not all of us, except for maybe one of us, one of us who is unhinged, 
I think most of us had maybe a lot of deep shame for having taken part in it originally, um, because over the years, reality television as a franchise had evolved and devolved in so many ways and become something entirely different than what we initially took part in. Particularly our show completely became something very different than what we had originally taken part in. So in current times, a conversation you have with someone like, for instance, in a work setting with I work with a lot of younger people in tech, you know, their perception of what I took part in back in the day is something very different <laughs> than what it was because they, they just don't have the reference point at this stage. So, yeah, that was something that I think we're still unpacking. I'm definitely still unpacking is I think a layer of shame had crept in over the years for having taken part in it. I think particularly when Trump became president and seeing sort of the dark underbelly of the beast coming out, having taken part in reality television was a tool that gave Trump a huge upper hand and where he learned to manipulate his audience. I think a big part of the shame came from that connection. Just like, oh, Jesus, this is not good. This is going very dark. Given everything that you just described, that the real world did ultimately, in a lot of ways, have a traumatizing effect on you, kind of drove you underground. Then there was accumulated shame around it. I am so curious to hear more about your decision to do Homecoming in the first place. I mean, really, what was your thought process in going back into this when you get the email from John Murray and the conversation starts? Why does someone like Danny Roberts, who again, you know, you're not like some of your other cast members who clearly were, you know, ready and waiting for TV to come knocking again. This is you are an unlikely reality star who had a very difficult experience the first time around. Why did you go back? What was the decision-making process for you? It's a, a great question. Even Paul, who came to visit me, we hadn't seen each other in 15 years. One of his first questions was, what the hell are you doing back here? Because, you know, probably more intimately than anybody, Paul knew exactly what my earlier experience had been like. He was living right there side by side with me through it. I think the question for both of us is, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> I think there are two major things at play there. One, compensation. Something that most people, I think, assume and are always surprised to hear is we weren't really compensated for the original one at all. So even though Peter Murray and MTV Viacom made God knows how many millions of dollars off of that show back in the day. I mean, when our season aired, it was something insane. It was the majority of MTV's revenue came off of that season that year. You know, there was a lot of money they made on their side and we really saw no compensation, which at the time when you're young and you sign up for it, you're like, oh, who cares? This is for the experience. Well, you don't, you're too young to understand the downside and the cost of this experience. So you learn later in life that like, oh yeah, we really got screwed there. So in a way, this was sort of, there was compensation with this, which was a bit of restitution for that original experience. But the biggest reason was, was this go was collaborative with production. This was very unlike the original, where the original was surprise, there's a wall here and we're filming you and you're going to like it. This time it was very much from the point that the conversation started with John until we actually aired, you know, there's probably eight to nine months that passed of conversations, negotiations to build trust and relationships with production, you know, from the head producers down. It was very much them getting an understanding and us making it very clear where our boundaries were, what we were and were not there for, and the storylines that we were interested in being part of. And there was a sense of comfort and control in that. 
The truth of that is, is it only went so far. <laughs> but there was definitely a sense of there, as you saw, if you see the homecoming, the fourth wall is broken down in big ways. And that was not the case the first go whatsoever. So when you start getting a vibe that this is going to be more collaborative, whether or not they followed through on that or not, but this is the promise that's being made. I am curious, even on a more specific level, what about that was enticing for you? Again, as someone who isn't craving the spotlight, I mean, were there particular kinds of stories that you did want told or was it just the opportunity to go back into the situation? Like, What was the actual draw for you to do this aside from the money? There's the practical side, but then there is definitely a nostalgia and emotional side. I, I think none of us ever felt right that we had all lost touch with each other. And something that was clearly such a foundational part of our early adult lives, yet all of us, for the most part, were had not spoken to each other in decades. I don't think that settled well with any of us. I think there was a true nostalgia to go back and revisit, find out where everyone was in their lives and correct that. That was something that just should have never happened. And I think, you know, our relationships moving forward will look very different, but it was the case. I think it was a big part of that. I think the other piece of it was it was very clear about the storylines that I felt like were important to share and to focus on. And my stance was, was if these are the storylines that you guys are interested in, let's do this. If you're not, then I'm not really interested in taking part in this. We had spent 22 years of our lives rebuilding our privacy, building our own professional private lives. For many of us, we're thinking about our actual professional careers. And, you know, there's a lot more risk in your adult life in going to do something like this, especially today. So there's a huge amount of risk that was weighed, um, which is why we negotiated for nine months until it really happened. A huge part of that was the, the storylines were, one, the story of New Orleans. I wanted the story of New Orleans to be told. Unfortunately, that story was told, but it was cut from the final edit. That city is so amazing, and I love that city, and it's been through some shit, <laughs> to say the least. For me, my journey with HIV was really incredibly important to share because I really there's still so much stigma around it, particularly within the LGBT community. But the story of how far medicine and science has come was important. The idea of being undetectable, what that means today, where medicine's heading. But the other piece was, I, I think we're in an era where things are getting very strange. We're in the upside down. And in a lot of ways, I feel like we're moving backwards now after some major societal progress over the past 22 years. Things move very quickly and now it suddenly feels like we're going backwards. So it felt like the right time to revisit where we were as a society and culture, particularly around LGBT issues 22 years ago, how far we've come, but how quickly we can slide back there. The Paul part of that story was not so important to me. They insisted because it was such an important part of my story back then. That was not actually important to me. But the story of don't ask, don't tell and what that life was like actually living inside of it post show was was important to me. So it does sound, though, like there is part of you that is actually a 
storyteller that there are things that you have to say you want to say them and even if you're not comfortable with a certain type of fame or relationship to fame there is a driving impulse in you i mean the words i'm hearing it's like i got something to say i actually start feeling an energy it's like the guy who's yeah lighting a torch and kind of ringing the bell like a battle cry like look there's things to look at to see to know gather around and like let's talk about it i think that is very fair to say i'm very much a storyteller it is you know i was a language major i've always enjoyed creative writing it's what i do in my professional career. I sell the stories of startups. I enjoy storytelling. And I think that's the good that can be found in reality television is some of the storytelling is powerful and meaningful. Not all of it, but I think there's opportunity there for that at least. That is what I love about reality TV. I, I always do see reality TV in a way as a, a reflection of the spiritual. And I guess for me, what that means is I subscribe to this idea that our souls, they incarnate into these lifetimes for a reason. So your soul chose the vessel of Danny Roberts, when he was born, to whom he was born, this whole journey for a reason. And that reason is to experience certain things and to hopefully master certain lessons. And if you use your free Free will to engage with the circumstances of your life from a place of consciousness, self-responsibility, growth. This is how our spirits evolve over lifetimes. And we're picking these identities that are going to give us different flavors of different experiences, right? And the reason why I say that is it is this idea, you know, people call this world a simulation. It's like the idea that there's this divine world where all spirits one, and then these little shards of spirits pick these lifetimes here on Earth. And it's it's like telling a story. It's like you cast the characters, right? And you pick the right character for the theme that you want to master. And and so for me, I certainly always look at storytelling as the simulation within the simulation. So we as human beings are like working something out here on Earth. And then stories help us to work something out here on Earth. And for me, yeah, reality TV has always felt like that. It's really felt like the true simulation within the simulation because it's people in a way, playing themselves, right? They're entering this field of storytelling and there is a story that's being told, right? But the the character or the archetype is your actual identity, right? So there's the actual person who exists in the world. Then there's the avatar identity in the reality show, what that avatar means to you, like you, Danny, there's you, Danny, and there's Danny in real world New Orleans, and now there's Danny in New Orleans homecoming, but then also what your avatar means to the collective consciousness as well. So there's just all these layers at play, and there's just something about that I always find fascinating, and it's why I refer to reality TV as a portal. It's like we're stepping into a space where our lives are literally becoming storytelling, and if it's done right... You, as a participant, have a chance to watch the show and to step outside of yourself, learn about yourself. People watching have a chance to learn from you as well. And so, again, it is the principle to me of fictional storytelling where we're gathering around to watch characters, to drop our myopic worldview, to experience something that connects us to a deeper truth by way of emotional empathy. But it's just so heightened because the storytelling in this case is rooted in reality. And even just the fact that it's called reality TV, it's never lost on me. It's like the nature of reality. Like, what is reality? It's all very meta. And I think that's kind of, you know, when we touch on how reality TV has evolved over the years is I do think in many ways 
the point you're making is we now live in a world where this is all self-reinforcing. You have people growing up consuming what they perceive of as reality television and then taking that perception and creating the next wave of reality television. And it just becomes this virtuous cycle. So where in there do we like lose touch with whatever reality was before? I don't know. Yeah. And then there's a deeper question of how do we use this medium for, you know, without sounding pretentious, higher consciousness, evolution, growth. One of the things I love about this podcast is that I will use these shows as a way to look at the cast members' deeper humanity. And what's great about it is I hear from people all the time saying, this is helping me to learn about me. And I'm like, great, that's my intention. Obviously, not everyone's choosing to engage with it in that way. But I will say what I've learned, and I'm sure you've probably had similar experiences in terms of hearing from people. What I've learned is that there are a lot of people out there who are smart spiritual seekers watching these shows and taking them in on deep levels. So the appetite is clearly there. It is not just TV zombies and trolls watching these shows. Very smart, sophisticated, spiritual people are watching these shows. Yeah. This homecoming experience has been one of the more incredible upsides of it has been actually getting live direct feedback from people and getting a sense of what the people are like because of social media now where this was not really feasible before. You know, we really weren't online back in the day and you really there was no way for us to directly interact with viewers. So this has been really eye-opening to understand the kinds of people and mindsets. And it runs a gamut, but yes, I would say it actually, you know, unlike what I think a lot of people would stereotypically think, it's mostly mindless people watching. That's not the case at all. Um, I think a lot of people really get into the socio-political storytelling as I should, because as you're talking, what comes to me is, of course, I mean, of course, the power of reality TV is that these are real people. So I think there's just something more immediate and potentially more affecting of watching someone who you know is real going through a genuine experience, having genuine emotions that hit you as opposed to, say, a fictional character. Just even the vulnerability, the courage, the transparency, of course, there's just going to be such a deep potential power there for connectivity and feeling our shared humanity in a way that I think we don't have to compare mediums, but it's definitely got its own potent power for sure. And I think people are starved for it today, too, because we are in so much of the upside down in the world today. Much thank you, Internet. I think people are hungry for grounding, genuine, open, transparent connections, even if they're parasocial connections. And there's a huge amount of, I think, nostalgia. A, a lot of people are flashing back to a little bit more time when things seemed at least a little more manageable before the world changed through the internet. I think the internet changed the world in so many ways after our original season. I think a huge part of the nostalgia and watching this is is returning to that era where things made it a little more sense, maybe, or at least were easier to wrap your head around the challenges that were going on back then. Not to say that it was a better time whatsoever. It definitely had its own challenges. It's almost like as you're talking, I get the image of a dog that, um, you know, how sometimes 
there'll be those invisible fences in the collar that zaps them. But a dog can, if it's like sprinting or out of control, it can race past the fence. But then on the other side, suddenly the shock catches up to it and it gets a little wobbly. And as you were talking, I just suddenly had this image of us as a collective kind of charging forward through these last 20 years and just, yeah, everything that's been happening with technology, the internet, social media. And it's almost like if we view, for example, something like homecoming as a metaphor, this opportunity to go back in time 20 or 30 years. Yeah, to your point, which was when you think about it now, you know, we're in the same generation. We're really in the generation that lived one way when we were young and saw something change and we're living a different way now. And to go back in time in a way and reflect, it's kind of that moment of like, wait, holy shit, things have been moving so hard and fast. We may not have even realized it. And now something is kind of collectively catching up with us. That is absolutely the truth. I think we all sense that we've been in this frenzy for 20 years without genuinely understanding uh, where this is all heading or even caring where this is all heading. But yes, your metaphor is perfect. I think we're getting zapped now. The universe is zapping us. <laughs> okay, great. So you you get the call. You know you have this intention. There, I mean, one, you're getting your due compensation that you've been owed all this time. Compensation, first and foremost, I am a single parent. I've got a child. That's where my brain is purely on practical needs these days. I love it. I mean, and to your point, you know, you know, I worked on the real world. And it is funny that at the time, even for me, because I always knew they made five grand per season. I mean, to me back then, I remember it feeling like it made sense. It's like, oh, yeah, they get the experience. They're famous. You know, it becomes a little career with the challenges. And of course, now from today's standpoint, where being a reality TV star is truly a career. I mean, now in retrospect, it seems shocking with the amount of money that's being made off these shows and the pennies that these cast members were getting to be in syndication internationally in perpetuity. When you sign up, you are so young and clueless, you don't even understand what syndication means. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing that I always felt bad about for the cast members working on the show, and I'm curious to get your take on this, is it was my impression too. I feel like the casting process was very nurturing. And I feel like the casting process in a way was was very supportive and very gentle. And I always felt like there was a bit of a culture shock when the actual production process starts because it's kind of like a a bird that's kicked out of the nest. You know, as you were saying earlier, it's like the fourth wall goes up. You got the bat phone to talk to production, but you know, you're kind of like in the fishbowl at that point. And it always felt a little bit to me like the rug is kind of getting pulled out from the cast members' feet in terms of how, again, nurtured and held they feel in the casting process. I don't know if you have any memories about that specifically. You know, until you just said this, I hadn't put much thought into it, to be honest, but it's absolutely true. When you go through the casting process, at least from my own experience, you do. That's a good way to put it. You feel nurtured. You feel loved. You feel like they're out for your, your best interests. They genuinely care about you and your story and da, 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 da. You know, I do think casting has a particular, they gain a particular interest in you as a person. They, they get to know you very well. So there is a, a, a personal care and involvement from casting. But once you cross that threshold into actually filming the show, I think you immediately become a product. And you are no longer like, yes, that sense that you are, it's like you're, yes, you're kicked out of the nest and it's bewildering and it 
you know, also people don't realize you film this thing for five months. So you feel, you know, you're very much cut off from your, your actual real day-to-day life in many ways and you're siloed. And it felt actually really lonely in a lot of ways through a lot of that. I think we could all relate in that because you do end up in your own head going, what the hell have I gotten myself into? And yes, you don't have that nurturing support from production anymore. In fact, it feels the opposite. In a lot of ways, it feels antagonistic because their job is to probe and push you from the narration side where you're pulled for interviews. The directors could be really antagonistic and intentionally to push your buttons. That's how they, that's how they make the magic, narrate the show. That's something I really remember was feeling like halfway through feeling really unsafe because it was, it became very clear that a couple of the directors had a personal vendetta, I, you know, and I think we all kind of felt this way is each of us had at least one director who had some personal vendetta against each of us it became like a, a personal vendetta to tell the story the way that they saw it and weren't going to have it any other way. It did not feel safe halfway through filming it. And I think, I think the result of that is I think most of us shut down by the second half of filming it and we're just sort of lolling around killing the time waiting to go home if you go back and look I, I, my guess is the majority of what made the final edit was actually filmed in the first half i just wanted to sleep the second half like wake me up when this is over <laughs> well i'm curious do you have any specific memories of antagonistic questioning oh completely there was a director who he was an older gay guy and he just he screamed at me in an interview at one point. I'm trying to remember exactly like what his specific antagonistic aim was. I think that was, it was multi-pronged, but you know, I think the gist of it was, you know, this guy was an older generation of gay who came from an era where it was like, be the activist gay man. And that was not me. That's not what I was there for. I was not an, you know, I think the advocate back in the day got it so dead on. They called me an accidental activist. I just fell into this by accident. It was not my personality to be an activist. I came from a small little podunk town where I knew where to just keep my mouth shut to survive. And he just wanted me to be this like really vocal confrontational activists with the rest of the roommates and he couldn't stand it that in many ways i was passive particularly with the religious issues which were a huge element of our original show but yeah you know in the first one i was quite passive about it i didn't have the right language yet to feel like i could speak against it effectively what they were saying and my reaction was just to let it slide by you know when you see homecoming you go back and watch some of it and it's cringeworthy what particularly matt said and just got away with but that's what the director was not pleased with he wanted me to be someone i'm not effectively and he he was so frustrated that he started screaming at me trying to get me worked up but it had the opposite effect it actually totally broke my trust and really freaked me out well yeah i imagine anyone being screamed at your natural instinct is going to be to shut down yeah that's exactly what happened you know what i'm just so aware of listening you speak it's so much to ask young kids you know because i mean i'm just thinking now of melissa i went and rewatched the original season in preparation of homecoming and it was really interesting to and this was addressed on homecoming but to watch melissa really attempt to speak to things that are now part of the collective conversation and to be honest actually looking back at it i thought she spoke to it quite well but the time and the place 
you know, it wasn't ready to be received. But even if she hadn't spoken to it quite well, to ask these 20-year-old kids to have the awareness and, to your point, the language to be able to speak to what's going on about their experiences as subjugated people, it's just, it's a lot to ask of people. And it is kind of, you're damned if you do, you damned if you don't. Because in the case of someone like Melissa or Kevin on the original Real World New York, it's like they are stepping up to the plate. And then if the context isn't ready to receive it, they get hung out to dry. So it's really sort of an impossible situation to be in as a 20-year-old. That's exactly it. And that's exactly, you know, what ultimately played out in my story was I did end up becoming the face of an issue, a a societal, political issue that was way, way, way bigger than anything I could wrap my head around. Don't ask, don't tell. Yet, you know, for every bit that Buna Murray really wanted me to be this antagonistic, confrontational activist, where were they after to support (laughs) that work? (laughs) There was no support whatsoever. You know, you are left to hang dry and figure it out on your own with the new added layer and complexity of of being a public figure and making sense out of all of that. Well, you know, here I am, 21 years old, still trying to make sense out of my sexuality and where my comfort level was and my boundaries and just the basic shit we're all trying to figure out at 21 years old in life. All of those layers all at once. It was quite overwhelming. And yes, and to your point earlier, you brought it up, you know, on the same topic as, yeah, not only did that happen, but also felt the pressure to stay in a, what really became a very toxic relationship much through living in that situation with something hanging over our heads that was outside of our control. And it was a time, I think it's easy to forget now, but it came about because it was a time when there were very few, if any, openly gay relationships to look towards. I'm sure, you know, here and there in this and that corner, particular for people in big cities, there was more to see. But for most of America, there was nothing to turn to. I think and I think people forget that today. And that point wasn't made very clear through homecoming. But that's why it happened is our relationship was not only representing something bigger than us with don't ask, don't tell, but it also became sort of this put on a pedestal for a lot of young guys as a model for the kind of relationship that people were looking for. This was a time when the idea of like having an open out life with a relationship was kind of new to most people. Like there was an entirely new concept that was just starting to become mainstream and widespread. That's where we were. And I landed in the middle of that. Well, and it's interesting, too, because going back to your description of the antagonistic director, in a way, he was kind of, to my perception, missing the point of your archetype. Because, you know, as someone who's growing up watching these shows, to me, Danny, the character on the show, what was so cool about him was, yeah, you had previously had your norms and your Pedros, and that was great. But they, to my mind, were more... There's a way they embodied being gay that felt very familiar. And you felt like someone who it was just different. You, you were more of, I mean, I, I feel like whatever language I'm going to use, I'm going to get in trouble. I'll just be politically incorrect. You were like a regular guy. 
You know, it wasn't you weren't leading necessarily with your sexuality. And I don't say that in a judgmental way towards Norma Pedro. They were needed, you know, and that's a spoke on the wheel. But there were these other spokes on the wheel. And, you know, speaking for myself as someone who's not straight, I'm not someone who's ever overly identified with what's kind of defined as gay identity. Like, I've never been drawn to that. So for me, the power of seeing someone like you was seeing someone who was embodying it in his own way. And so it's just interesting to me that this director was wanting you to go against a certain grain, not understanding. I think that's actually where a lot of your power for a lot of people rested was in the fact that it wasn't in your nature to be the, again, I don't mean this judgmentally, but to be the archetype of the confrontational, I'm leading with this in a really sort of visible charged way Instead, I'm doing this differently. Yeah. And, you know, I think that can be said about just anything in my life is I have never been the type to just naturally gravitate towards what everybody else is doing or how everybody else approaches it or how the majority approaches something. My natural instinct is to sort of figure out how I want things to work in my own life in my own way. And this was just another example of that. You know, and in no way was I downplaying my sexuality, but it was also not in my nature to allow that to just become what effectively be a one-dimensional side of me. Well, also my sense of you is that you are someone who's genuinely curious about others. I think you want to hear what other people have to say. I think you're actually very invested in connection. And I think you're willing to connect with different types of people, you know, who have different ways of thinking. And so, yeah, of course. I mean, if you are someone who's deeply invested in connection and has a sincere interest in getting to know your fellow human being leading with antagonism <laughs> is not really going to um, produce best results. I think you're someone who's sort of genuinely open to wanting to hear, to wanting to connect and to see what bridges can be forged in a real way. I think that is very true. I think one of my favorite parts in life is meeting people who really surprise me because they're living their life in some unique way. I love being surprised by people who are who are living Different colors of this life experience, if you want to put it that way. So you've made this decision to go back into the situation, into homecoming, right? And it's clear, I mean, just from everything you've shared, but also it was so clear to me watching the show, there is just a huge amount of distrust towards BMP, let's say the process. And so I'm curious, what was it about the first experience that left you distrustful of the production company, of the process. I mean, I understand the fame was something you weren't ready for or anticipating, but in terms of BMP, the process, what was the source of your distrust? Yeah, it's it's a very clear turning point. I would say, you know, probably four to five years after the original experience when I was uh, taking all of the steps to, to move on with a, my regular life, if you want to call it that. But there was clearly something that was holding me back, which I didn't have the language for at the time. But I, I, I was smart enough to realize that it was something bigger than me in my understanding, and I thought I needed help. And I've never been one to reach out for counseling. Um, but I, I thought this was probably a time for me to give that a try. And through that journey and that discovery, you know, I came to understand like what was really going on psychologically through all of that. Those few years after the original show, 
When, by the way, the thing is still airing on TV in heavy rotations. It's not like it just aired and disappeared. Or this is, it's not streaming. It's constantly back on MTV for multiple years after it's actually first aired. That's something to remember back then. And I wa- you know, wasn't prepared for how it actually truly did impact day-to-day life. The fact that my partner at the time was still in the military and we had to live under Don't Ask, Don't Tell for a few years afterwards. And in effect, I was forced back into a bizarre kind of closet. It was all incredibly ironic that this was all about me coming out to the public and the world. And then I actually had to go and hide myself away for years. And that did a number on my mind. It wasn't healthy to live that way for anyone to live that way. But I I needed the support to make sense of it all. And the turning point was was reaching out to BNM Murray for that support. And they absolutely refused, hands down. And that's when I realized they had there's no soul there, no responsibility, wash their hands. That's when I came to understand as well, we are not human stories to them, we are products. That is where the distrust came from. Is that something that you had to address with John going into this? That's why John and I have a, a, a personal direct relationship. I will say that many years later, John and I did connect one-on-one and he eventually did the right thing. Let's just say it took many stumbles over the years to get to the right counselor that I needed, the right the type of counselor that I needed who got it, who tuned into what it really was. And John, I will say to his credit, he did support that ultimately. But that was many years later. And so were there specific fears about going into this in terms of how your trust could be betrayed or what might happen or just, you know, one going back and being triggered from a really what what ultimately did become a, a, a dark few years, the dark twilight that I walked through, like didn't really want to revisit that I'd come to the other side of it in a really healthy way. And it was generally like my life was falling into a healthy place. It just didn't seem like maybe a a wise decision to dig up that old buried box. And just, I think today, this is a very different era that we live in with social media and immediate reactions online and a hypercharged polarized society that is incredibly reactionary, not always logical. And again, you know, I have a regular professional life and a child. I don't want to harm that in any way. So there's a, a huge uh, amount of risk to step out and put yourself out there in a vulnerable way again, not knowing how it could have been received today. I think we all ran the worst case scenarios through our heads many, 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 many times, how this would play out horribly. I think it played out generally beautifully, and I'm actually pretty proud of it, and I'm very happy it happened, but that's not where my mind was originally. I was terrified of it. Well, that's something else I wanted to ask you about because I heard you on another podcast say something to the effect of, yeah, having left the first season feeling in ways betrayed or distrustful of the process or that there was sort of manipulation involved and sort of having that fear and concern the second time around and then seeing as it's played out that actually this time around you didn't have a similar experience that you felt they did right by you. And I'm, I was just so curious about that because from my perspective as someone who worked on the show, the one thing that I will say in terms of the seasons I worked on, as far as 
the production of the show itself. What I always saw was that this was something where they didn't tamper with anything in terms of like what's happening on camera. I mean, interviews are one thing, but in terms of the, the kids in the wild of the house in the world, no one's scripting anything. No one's telling anyone to do anything. The kids are self-directed. Whereas Real World Homecoming to me as a viewer felt so much more produced directed i'm not going to go so far i don't think it was like staged but you've spoken on other podcasts about the fact that you know they brought paul out there's sort of the fake introduction of him through oh i'm just happening to text you so to me it's like homecoming felt more produced in that way and so i was just so curious about your experience of feeling like homecoming was actually in some way, sort of a truer or purer experience for you than the first time around. Can you say like why that was for you? I think it's just, it boils down to a control element. I just, I felt more personally in control this time. I don't think that has so much to do with the scenario with production being really that different, which it was, by the way, we'll get to that in a second. I just think it comes from being a wiser, more centered adult and feeling like I am grounded in myself so much more than I was back then. Um, you know, 22 years ago, I wasn't grounded at, at all. I was a freaking child. For me, the biggest factor is just feeling very clear about my boundaries, where I've been in this life, what I intend, what my intentions are. I sort of just stumbled into that first one, just wide-eyed and doe-eyed without any sort of end goals. Just, I'm here to live and this is great. Now, from a production standpoint, Homecoming was absolutely far more engineered is a good way to put it. I'm not going to say like the storylines were engineered or worse. Nothing was scripted, but it was very clear that whereas like, you know, from your role before, much of the story writing happens post-production. It's I think this go around because we had plenty of production conversations up front about what we were interested in approaching and sharing. As I think some of their storylines were really gelled going into this, you know, and then for various reasons, the producers had ideas on where they wanted to see those stories go. And, you know, an example is that oftentimes the producers would actively, they would never have done this in the original, but Homecoming would step in and actively prod like one of us to, you know, maybe go deeper on that subject, share a little more about that. Can you explain this more clearly? That sort of thing. So not steering the storyline so much as maybe polishing for a, a final cut more so live. You also have to think about this go around was, you know, two and a half or so weeks of filming. The original was five months. So, you know, they had to kind of get it right the first time or totally miss it. Now, I do think there was an interesting element in, in this go. I didn't quite understand why we were in it, but I, I think... One of the castmates, I think, was highly influenced by production and her storyline and her approach was highly influenced by production. And I don't think there's a need, a need to say the name. It's kind of obvious. And I think that, that was something that very much played out, which I do think was the one place where I feel like maybe there was a bit of manipulation in the storytelling. Are you saying you feel felt or suspected that production was making suggestions and that was dictating some of her behavior? I do. I suspect that that's what happened. Is that your explanation as to her behavior in general, or do you think it was just one part of an overall? I think it's just one element of an overall story of when narcissism meets television, meets trauma, meets 
production influence. <laughs> That's a whole different episode for you. I seriously, I was just thinking, I was like, there's so much I could say, and this one person could be a whole episode because again i remind you i wa- i rewatched the original season prior to this so there's there's a bit a lot that's been on my mind in a mind to intuitive radar when it comes to this cast member but we'll just sort of leave it there for now but you know it is so interesting that in keeping with this theme of like what reality tv represents and in particular real world homecoming new orleans which really seems to have tapped into something it's it's so interesting to me that that particular homecoming really does in so many ways feel about the politics of reality TV. Because on the one hand, like I said, I felt the distrust in you, Kelly, Melissa, Tokyo, oh, Matt, for sure. I mean, I felt the collective distrust you know, you might call it fear or kind of like, yeah, we, we know what's going on. <laughs> There's a game that's being played here and we're making sure that we're, we're playing the game and we're not going to lose. But what was so, so that was sort of like baked in unspoken, right? The whole time. And then on the other side of the room, you've got this, as you said, unhinged character who's all about it being a TV show. And that contrast to me was so bad. It was like the yin and the yang, like the group that's kind of like, we wish we could somehow like do this without it being a TV show. We're scared of the TV show. Like we'll do anything to kick and scream against the TV show. And then this other figure who's like, hell yeah, we're making a TV show again to almost kind of pathological degree. And so the real world New Orleans homecoming without it ever being said, it felt so much to be about tv without explicitly being about tv do you make anything of that as i say that like what does that mean to you yeah it makes total sense you know for the rest of us it was very much a sense that we all had that original experience we all had our own outcomes from it and in our own personal ways related to our own personal stories for the most part none of us really had trust in the process or really necessarily were super eager to revisit the whole thing for various reasons, except for, yes, this one person who really came for an entirely different reason, which was to relive a part of her life that was probably a golden era, and in many ways, uh, things that she never actually got to have because of her religious background. So, she was almost like she was going back to relive her 20s again, whereas we were all there to be wiser, hopefully grown adults. <laughs> so we were there for very different reasons. The rest of us were definitely not there to relive our 20s. Uh, if anything, it was to reflect on our 20s. What you just said was literally the hit I got off it when I would kind of feel around into sort of, and at least in part, what's going on for this particular cast member with the show. It was this feeling of like, I get to do it my way this time. Like I was held back last time, you know, by, yeah, exactly what you're saying, religion and a kind of a feeling of like, I missed out on something and I want my chance again. And this time I get to do it my way. No matter how uncomfortable or inappropriate it may be. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, you almost saw her going to like what worked last time. Yes. It was very much that it was this mechanism worked last time. Can I, can I use this tool again? Let's play this. Yeah, like I'm going to take the bold risk of saying stuff that can get me excommunicated. It was that I'm playing that rebel role again. But it, it felt to me like 
a performance. I mean, it really felt like this automated thing of I'm doing this because, yeah, this is what I did before. And I'm trying to kind of recreate something here. I mean, I got to be honest, it was fascinating to watch on a certain level. Um, I didn't envy you guys navigating it. It was painful. I got to say it was actually uh, far more painful to go back and actually watch than it was to be there in it. You know, when you're in the moment, you're catching snippets and tidbits of it and mostly avoiding, but you go back and watch it and you're, it's just like, oh my God, this is a train wreck. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is being said. What were you thinking? Holy cow. Well, and it's also just so interesting from a metaphor perspective that, again, you have this group of people who are going into this experience distrustful of the TV process and in some ways, you know, kind of holding back as a result of that. And then again, you have this person who is acting out in these ways who, again, my experience as a viewer is like, I felt like I could feel the unease and that her presence in the way that she was showing up was additionally prohibiting the free flow of connection and energy. So it's almost like she became the personification of like the TV cogs that we don't trust that we're holding back from. You got it dead on. That's That was the actual conclusion I, I ultimately came to in watching it. And I didn't realize it in real time was that actual performative behavior is exactly what drove the uneasiness and distrust that actually prevented, I think, a lot of what could have happened otherwise if we had all just approached it with the same intentions and on the same ground level. And it's unfortunate. I didn't see that playing out at the time, but watching the final cut, it's so obvious that's what played out. And it's really unfortunate. Part of it was I was just, Kelly and I are the ones, the two that have have remained in touch and stayed friends all these years. So I was actually excited to go just get to have some time with Kelly, just no children, just downtime, playtime, vacation time, if you want to call it that. <laughs> but yeah, that didn't really get to happen, unfortunately. You know, she actually left within days of arriving. <laughs> she just did not feel comfortable. And that's ultimately what it was about. That person made her feel incredibly uncomfortable and unsafe because there was a lot of performance going on and a lot of murky intentions happening. And yes, a lot of whipping out old tools and playing games. It was just so obvious. Nobody wants to be around that. It does not make you feel comfortable or settled. Yeah, the real world New Orleans homecoming almost unofficially feels like it is about the dynamics of being on television, even though it's not named as that up front, which is what I find so fascinating about it. But it is. You're right. In fact, uh, Melissa titled it perfectly. And I think when we were watching the second episode, she's, she said, this is watch, this is going to be the reckoning for reality TV. She caught on early on that is actually where, without being explicit, that yes, production did let that be part of the storytelling. And so what does that mean to you guys, the reckoning of reality TV? Well, it depends on if you're tuned in enough like you to see what you see, because I don't know if everyone sees that. I do think that is the ultimate theme of Homecoming. If you pull out, zoom out from our own personal story narratives, yes, that's what it really is about. So there's two things that come up for me. I mean, I think one, it feels so perfect because what was occurring to me when you were speaking earlier is what is so interesting about an experiment like this is that you guys are old school reality TV stars walking in to the new reality TV landscape. You know, so you were speaking to that about how it's changed and social media and all this. 
And so in a way, it feels like the perfect cocktail for it to be the reckoning of reality TV. Because, you know, again, I keep going back to these words that I hear of like a portal open in reality TV. It feels a little bit like this was a portal where the old and the new sort of came together to really reflect where we are in all of this. And I think to our earlier point in the conversation, the tension between what's good about reality or potentially good about reality TV in terms of the connectivity, in terms of the shared humanity, and then also what causes it to be, yeah, kind of like the the dark beast that we don't totally trust, which is sort of the hyper awareness of sort of what we're creating, the TV show, the fame, all the attendant issues. So I just think that's really interesting. And perhaps perhaps part of why there's been a kind of magic to this particular homecoming, you know, that feels like it sort of opened something up, even amidst all the restraint and the unease. But the other thing that's just been coming through me for you in particular, because again, I'm still sort of holding this question of like, what is this all about for you? And so it was just so interesting to me when you talked about that notion of originally going on in the real world as a vehicle for your coming out and wanting to be more public. But then that the this show, the public show, actually drove you underground. And again, that tension between, well, I'm not really geared towards fame, but I am a storyteller and I do have things to say. And I just keep getting this sense for you, Danny, in terms of life themes. Like if I were working with you, something I would want to explore, like, is this relationship to what it means to be in public, publicly out. It feels like there's a lot of dancing that happens around that push, pull, in, out, here, there. And it's almost like what comes to me in this moment is, yeah, like what is Danny's right relationship to public persona, to being in front of people? Like what's actually right for him? How does he want to be in public, like what form does that take? Because it feels like there's some sort of sacred relationship to public persona, whether that means locally, online, reality, who knows what it means. But it's almost like there's an invitation for you to get clear. Because it's almost like when I take in young Danny, it's almost like you just kind of threw yourself to the wolves, like almost sort of taking on more energetically than perhaps you were ready for. And so if like there's like a more modulated version of what it means for Danny to be in public, how he wants to be in public, what stories he wants to tell, why he wants to tell them. This is the last thing I'll say, especially because one of the other things that I've always been drawn to for you is the role of passivity in the first part of your journey and how you were kind of just sort of led along by your nose into all these different things. So I also get curious for you about what is your relationship to ownership of, yeah, the narratives you want to write, what you want to create, the stories you want to tell, and what would it mean for you to take ownership of that in the way that Danny wants to do it? Yeah, I think that's that's ultimately where my journey is now is moving beyond a more passive earlier half of my adult life into a much more intentional second half in every aspect of life. And this just drops in like a Tetris piece. Well, how so? Yeah, like tell me about that. My mind, my my spiritual health, my mental health had all sort of coalesced to a point where I was already in that place. And then this thing just sort of dropped out of nowhere, homecoming. And is it is like a bookend to, it has always felt like there was this first bookend to a set that we got 22 years ago into this story and this journey. But the end of it had gotten really hazy and foggy and almost like looking back, was, was that a fantasy? Did that really happen? And now it does genuinely feel like there is a solid, tangible bookend to that story. Two, put that story in a healthy context. 
and wipe the slate clean in a lot of ways without all the loose tangly ends out of the way and being very clear in what's what's important in life and what is done in life. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, honestly, what comes to me in this moment, and it suddenly feels so obvious, I feel like at least in part, what homecoming gave you an opportunity to do was to shift from a more passive role to a more intentional role. Like I hear you saying that in everything, like it was collaborative. I had stories I wanted to tell. I had boundaries that I was drawing. I went into it with my eyes open. I kept my cards close to my chest when it felt right to do so. I mean, it did give you an opportunity to reclaim the experience from a place of, yeah, I'm just like a young 20-year-old kid who's like showing up, sort of throwing myself into this, to I am the more intentional adult man who is going into this from a place of deeper self-responsibility for my experience and creating what I actually want to create. And maybe that was part of the psycho-spiritual process and invitation for you in this. And actually having the tools to do it this time. That was the most important part. You know, it's like, had all of the, any part of this fallen into my my journey here at a different timing none of this probably would have played out the right way like it all sort of fell together like tetris pieces to get to the right place where i felt like this was a time where i could do the homecoming they had asked me two years before i would, would have likely said hell no i just wouldn't have been in the right psycho spiritual place for it at that point So let me ask you one thing I've been curious about. I know you're a tech recruiter. I mean, I don't even know what that is. So maybe you can tell people a little bit about what a tech recruiter actually does. And is that something that fulfills you? Because I feel like we're sitting here in some ways talking about life task and what you're here to create. And yeah, I've just been so curious in listening to your interviews about your relationship to what you're currently doing and yeah, how that fits in with everything. I am a, I, I recruit in the technical world. I actually am an in-house recruiter. So I work in the startup world, meaning I work inside of an organization to build it from its early foundations. So there, you know, there's a level of understanding the technicality of, of different roles and what is needed. But a big part of it is understanding people's psychological motivators, just general psychological states and how people fit together in organizations. I think a lot of my my journey has helped me be really good at that. And then there's a huge part of it that's storytelling. It's selling. It's selling life in an organization, selling what the organization is doing to people. And that's the part I really enjoy. So it is ultimately, you know, it's selling people on, you know, career, our careers are a huge part of our lives. So it's selling, ultimately it's selling in a lot of ways, lifestyles to people. Okay. So you're like, you're recruiting the people to come work for the company and you're telling the story of the company, basically saying, Hey, this is the story you should take part in. I actively recruit technical talent. So people who code, people who design software, people who run all of the technical aspects of the programs and logistics, all of that. And so is this something that fulfills you? I think like most work in this world, there are the aspects that do and some of it's just pragmatic. Um, There are the parts that I enjoy that it's the storytelling. That's the part I really enjoy. It's building something from scratch. But like everything, the good and the bad days. <laughs> well, I guess I would ask, does it feel like there's space in your life that wants to be fulfilled? Like, is there an itch that you're looking to scratch creatively? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm not going to go into them, but I think those are the doors that are now being open post homecoming that I now am intentionally driving towards. 
Okay. So it sounds like the experience with homecoming has sort of opened up your own willingness to be intentional towards going towards those things that will sort of more deeply fulfill you. Yep, that is exactly it. So then I guess my question for you then is looking back, having done this experience, if you had to say, this is what I got out of doing homecoming, this is what it's brought me, this is what I got from this experience that I wouldn't have otherwise received had I not done it, what would you say? Yeah, I think it's two major things. I think one, it is the invaluable reconnection with my castmates who I now just genuinely recognize that it has always been so important for us to be connected with each other and understand each other's experiences to support each other. No one else on this planet understands what we've been through. And again, it's really unfortunate that that 22 years nearly passed for most of us without any kind of communication. Um, I think that was a huge missed opportunity to support each other over the years. And we all sort of suffered through it all quietly in our own ways, tucking it all away in, in, in some sort of, I think, survival mechanism for each of us. But the other piece of it is, has been to genuinely get an understanding of the meaning and impact that viewers got from my experience, particularly. You know, I always had a vague sense of, of the, the reaction of viewers, but I never had a super clear picture. And this has crystallized in many ways like what this really was to viewers. Understanding just where viewers were in their lives back then, I always had this misunderstanding that most people watching were in their 20s and 30s. And now I realize that this, this was so meaningful to a lot of particular gay men because they're actually really young teenagers watching it. And that never crossed my mind, which I now understand is why this was my story then was very foundational in a lot of young guys coming out experiences. I just didn't understand that back then whatsoever. I had no way to understand that actually a shitload of guys watching were only like 11, 12, 13, 14 years old at the time. That never crossed my mind. Understanding that's been incredibly meaningful and it gives meaning to the overall experience too. It's not just some fluffy TV experience that that I, I did with very little to gain from it, a lot of pain. Like It actually had some more meaningful, bigger impact outside of me in the world. I don't know. What else can you ask for in life? It's so interesting. As you're talking, I'm getting such a strong hit of just what I would call like the field of the real world, the energy of the real world. And just again, I mean, we spoke to it at the beginning, the angel and the devil. There's such an ambivalence in there, right? Because there's something that's so seductive about the real world. Like I think even when you've been battered and bruised by it, you know, because you're speaking to it, there was some sort of good intention there that comes through in the show in those early years. The way we shared those stories with those people and yes, the shared humanity. And it's like why I understand from a cast member's perspective, no matter how much you fucking hate or resent that show, I think there's always going to be that temptation to like go back and visit. But it does really feel like, I mean, hearing the words, the belly of the beast, it just feels like this deal with the devil. You know, it's light and it's dark. It's good and it's bad. It's to, your, you know, kind of going back. It's like the nurturing casting process. And then it's like cutting you off afterward. There's, you know, look, I don't know John or knew Mary Alice personally. I have to imagine perhaps in some part, this is, this is a reflection of their own 
ambivalence in the way they navigated it. I mean, I know what it was like to work there at that company. <laughs> I'll just sort of leave that at that for now. But it was a similar thing as someone who worked there in post. Like, I actually loved working there. I loved being a part of the show. I loved the humanity of it. I loved the project we were a part of. But then I hated the culture of the company and the way that we were treated as employees. Yeah, you just confirmed something for for me. You know, we have we have a suspicion that ultimately how our experiences as cast members often plays out is just a reflection of a broader culture at the company. And you've just confirmed it for me. So funny because I was like in my early to mid 20s that I remember just being in that log pit as a logger, (laughs) feeling the culture of the company and just knowing this is coming straight from the top. Like this is coming from John and Mary Ellis and they are the nucleus or the mitochondria of this like big cell that spirals outward. And this also reminds me of my experience as a viewer of the show who grew up watching it because I remember being clear about when and where it was changing. I remember that the show was one thing for its first few years. And then London was the one boring season. So then in Miami, they gave them a job. And I remember kind of like, as a viewer thinking, oh man, it sucks that they're not trusting their own show. It sucks that they're not trusting their own formula. I could feel the reactivity, even as a viewer of like, holy shit, something went wrong. We got to scramble. And that's kind of where like the cynicism comes in, right? And yeah, it was a similar thing working there as an employee where I just sort of felt like, God, I wish you guys could just trust what you're doing and trust good intentions and create a company culture that serves everyone. I was going to say, I remember I was working on Real World San Diego and I remember they had just cut together the season premiere and Mary Ellis was not pleased with the season premiere. And I remember her sort of walking around the building And her complaining, it's so shallow. It's so shallow. Like, it's so shallow. And I remember just sort of looking at her thinking, but this is the show. Like, this is the direction you guys took the show in. Like, if you don't want it to be shallow, why are you casting it the way that you're casting it? Why are you going down this road? And I just remember being so... I mean, there's that ambivalence again in an unconscious way. It's like, the show is what you allow it to be. And yet you're complaining about what it's become as if you don't have a hand in its creation. It's the beast you created. <laughs> yeah, it gets back to what I was talking about earlier. There is production at the end of the day has a certain way in their minds that they want to see things go regardless of what's right there in front of them. And sometimes they will try to push against the grain to force it. And the outcomes are likely not what they want or what they did want. My last question, if we bring in the bookended experience, Let's say you'd been on the original real world, right? And shot out of the cannon. Everything went great. You know, life flowed, was easy. You didn't have that sort of tunnel of darkness. And then there was no real world homecoming. Can you speak to what you think you've specifically gotten from this experience of having such a difficult first time going through what you've gone through and then being able to bookend the experience on the other side? I think the difficulties and challenges that I've had in this life how our conversation started off, I do feel like regardless of the fact that I may not have enjoyed much of that ride, the universe intended it. The universe has been working hard to teach me particular lessons to, I think, build my inner core and my character. I don't think I would have the character and the strength I have now if I hadn't have been through a lot of these challenges. I think I'd be an entirely different person I'm not saying it in, 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 a, in a negative or qualitative way, but 
I would be a very different person likely had I not been through a lot of these challenges that were bigger than me, that were outside of me, that made me have to grow to meet those challenges. You know, I would have lived much of this life on autopilot. I think this experience has given me some really interesting capabilities in understanding people and relationships that I don't think would have been as deep before. I think the work that I do now in my professional life is a direct outcome of the skill set I learned through this experience. It is learning how to read the room, understand people's motivators, people's reactions, people's instincts and drives. I think all of that came from the challenge of living through this wacky experience. And again, if I had not had those, I would have lived life on autopilot, you know? It's like that passivity would have likely been my entire life. And I don't think that's a life I want to live. I would not be pleased with that. Yeah, I mean, that's just what I'm hearing for you. Just what I'll leave you with is I feel like from a life task perspective, I feel like, yeah, there's something really here about the journey from passivity to intentional action and sort of claiming your life for yourself. It does get me so curious for you about your relationship to passivity, just even from an early age, maybe. But also the other major theme, like I said before, is really claiming your stories and who you are as a storyteller. And again, what that means for you in terms of public persona versus private life. It feels like there's just something there that wants to be clarified, modulated, claimed. It's almost like your life, your narrative got co-opted by the show, right? It's like if I were working with you, I would want to start asking questions about earlier experiences in life around, you know, were there ways in which you felt like your energy was co-opted, your experiences were co-opted, you were meant to play certain roles in a way that gave you this experience of feeling like my energy, my life force, it gets co-opted, therefore creating a kind of passivity in you. Because if you're getting this message from an early age that I don't really have agency, I'm kind of hearing to really activate like my strong masculine, like, life force, energy, power, it would make sense that you might default into passivity. And so then you're in this place where you're kind of unconsciously rolling over, let's say, and being passive, there's this kind of distorted relationship back and forth between way too public. Okay, let me like retreat into the hermetic field. And so that it becomes about, no, I get to say no to my energy being co-opted. I get to use my energy the way that I want to do it. And then in that place, I get to make decisions about how I walk this line between what's right for me and how I want to show up for other people, whether that's public, personal relationships. Yeah, this just feels like the arc of your journey for you, for sure. Yeah, it feels very dead on. Bingo. That's very much where my mentality is right now. Great to hear it confirmed. And yes, you and I could have a whole conversation uh, another day about the past and and where that co-opted energy came from, that sense, that mentality. I could explain to you in detail what that was. We've done the work. (laughs) And the last thing I'll say to you, just in response to what you said before, your regret about not having been in touch for those 22 years and not having support each other. I, When you were saying that, I felt so deeply, this is the way it had to be. It had to be this way. You guys were meant to not be in contact in that way. You wouldn't have had the same experience with homecoming, had you guys been in touch, there's something about, like you said, with the Tetris piece, there's something about this that feels so guided and right. And I'm just here. Everyone had to go to their corners 
the disconnection had to be there in order to create the clean connection that happened this time around. Yeah, there is something to be said that I do think that the outcome of Homecoming is something that I can be proud of because I do think there was a clean slate in many ways that we walked into for the most part that was important and was everything in the final outcome. It would have been something very different otherwise, you know. If you watch the first two homecomings, it's very clear what that difference looks like when those connections haven't been severed. All right, Danny. Well, thank you so much for stopping by. This was a lot of fun. It has been my pleasure. And thank you so much for being gracious and patient and making this happen. Is there anything people should know about? Should they follow you anywhere? I'm really not on social media much, but I am on Instagram. You can find me at jdannyroberts. LinkedIn is where I spend a lot of my time in in professional life. If you want to find me there, I do do actual career coaching, professional coaching. If anybody wants to reach out to me there, that's a good place. Even though LinkedIn is not a sexy place to hang out. Do you want to mention the um, Halloween bash? Oh, good call. Yes, I will go ahead and mention this. Many more details to come or in pre-planning stages, but I am hosting a Halloween party that is going to be in New Orleans. It's going to be that Sunday, the 30th, I believe it is. Tickets will have up for sale early in the fall, later in the summer, and uh, all the proceeds are going to go to a charity that we're, we're going to pick out for our LGBT youth down there. Really, it's an excuse to get together and hang out in New Orleans because I love New Orleans at Halloween. It's my favorite time of the year. It's amazing because people in New Orleans go all out for costumes. And New Orleans always has a lot of outer, out-of-towners, but New Orleans at Halloween definitely feels more of a local vibe. And that's part of the fun, too. You know, usually at an event it is almost always out-of-towners, but it's not the case at Halloween. And the costumes are sick. If you follow me on Instagram, that's where I'll be posting details, ticket sales and stuff later on. And as always, you can follow me on Instagram, Jamie Stein, J-A-M-I-E-S-T-E-I-N, where I have all sorts of uh, reality TV-related content and spiritual-related content. And if you're curious about my work, you can head on over to my website, hollywoodreadings.com, and send me an email. And I will see you guys all on the flip side. Bye. Bye.